is Radio Joe Hughes, and here with me in the studio at the controls is Frank Zappa Amata. And coming to us from Studio C is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Good day, Cliff. Um, today's guest is going to be Ed Light. We're going to talk about the limitations and alternatives to indoor air quality testing. But before we do, let's stop and thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at CleanFacts, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and C-M-M-Online. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. Of course, people know you can download the show. Go to iaqradio.com. Follow the link that says go to show. You can also get our show from iTunes. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks. Prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email it to czalotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. I'm sorry to report that there were no correct answers to last week's trivia question. The IEQ Radio trivia question for Friday, November 14, 2014, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events, Check out their website. It's www.trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. Name the first ever building to receive the LEED Platinum Rating. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. As I mentioned, today's guest is Mr. Ed Light. Ed is a certified industrial hygienist who has specialized in indoor air quality for over 30 years. His academic training was in environmental science and public health, followed by mentoring from professionals with NIOSH and the restoration industry. <clears throat> Excuse me. In 1982, he set up one of the first governmental IAQ programs in the West Virginia Department of Health to investigate exposures to formaldehyde, asbestos, and misapplied pesticides. Ed is currently the president of Building Dynamics, a mechanical engineering and industrial hygiene firm headquartered in the D.C. Baltimore area. He has directed over 1,000 investigations, including a cold air study at the South Pole Station and a hot air study at the White House. Ed spends his spare time raising two teenage daughters and holding down the first banjoist chair in the all-new genetically altered jug band. And... By way of introduction, music, Ed's got his own intro music for today. Here's a fungus among us. You better watch your tail. There's a fungus among us. They all begin to wail. There's a fungus among us. Don't you feel a little sick? Blah! Fungus among us. I'm getting out when I quit. Uh, 
Thank you, Ed. All right. Well done. Ed, that's another first on IAQ Radio. Our first live, I believe, Cliff, our first live intro music. Didn't he do it once before? I don't know. We played a clip from Ed before, I believe. Ed, we, we have you back? Yeah, I'm here. Great. Good to have you. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Hey, let's let's get into the, the subject at hand here today. Um, we, we're talking about essentially indoor air quality assessments and complaints and, and how to solve them and then also how to verify if we've solved them. But let's start by asking, can, can you make judgments on indoor air quality based on the contaminant, on contaminant sampling? Uh, you can make uh, very little conclusive findings from just testing. Uh, and we're, the practitioners anyways are, are testing for three basic reasons. The first would be to determine if the air is unhealthy. And uh, what we need to understand is that we actually know very little about most of the contaminants in the air at IAQ concentrations. And because of that, there are no standards for indoor air that are generally accepted by public health authorities. And then the other very common reason we assess indoor air is to determine if it's acceptable. And uh, one of the basic flaws with a lot of IEQ testing is that they don't account for what is normal background. Um, and be, uh, because of this, there really are no generally accepted uh, numbers. There's a whole variety of numbers people use, but none generally accepted as IEQ standards. And then the third very common reason for testing is to verify mitigation. And uh, looking specifically at mold, mold testing does not answer the basic question, is this site restored? Uh, and a uh, overall uh, limitation for testing when it is done, besides the fact that the criteria really aren't hard and fast and really aren't based on the science, but it's failed to recognize how variable indoor air concentrations are by time and location, and that, in fact, the sampling strategies almost all the time, that at least the ones I look at, uh, don't account for variability. Therefore, they're not representative. They don't pick out worst case or averages. It's just kind of a random check. Uh, so uh, the, the, these limitations really cut into the, uh, the accuracy and the utility of field practitioners' tests, but actually uh, they also include to, uh, they apply to our fellow scientists doing basic IAQ research. And many of the studies I've looked at failed to recognize the limitations of just testing uh, a, few, a few contaminant concentrations <clears throat> and making those the basis of their study and their uh, conclusions. And actually, what, what I say to researchers is they might want to look back at our traditional engineering, medical, and restoration approaches to characterizing indoor air quality, which I actually believe uh, are generally better than relying on a few tests. And certainly quantitative research needs to, to use some quantitative testing, but without recognizing the uh, overall conditions, uh, they really aren't uh, understanding quite what, what, what they're looking for. So anyway, now that I've probably offended 90% of the folks out there, I'll take more questions. I don't think it's offensive. I think most people would agree, or many would agree with what you're saying, Ed. Now, tell us, though, how you, how does Ed Light recommend investigating an indoor air quality complaint? Where do we start? Okay, the... Uh, I've developed a, a protocol uh, back 30 years ago uh, based on working uh, with public health, environmental health folks who are very effective at looking at environmental conditions and listening to uh, occupant and public complaints and looking for an association and taking the, the most practical, shortest path to identifying and fixing the problem. And uh, this approach uh, actually was uh, 
the one and only time I was contracted by EPA was was way back in 1990. They wanted to set up a, a manual, a protocol on how to investigate indoor complaints. Uh, and uh, so I, I was co-author on that. And actually, that manual provides a very general, very effective practical protocol that can be used by scientists, but can be used equally well by uh, really by anybody, by facility managers and practitioners and everyone. And so to look at a complaint, what it says is you don't even think about testing up front. You do uh, an initial screen, which would uh, consist of inspection, observing uh, indicators of indoor air quality, uh, an engineering review to see what building systems are doing and not doing, and actually talking to the occupants of the building, both complainants and non-complainants, about uh, what they're experiencing, what they're reporting, uh, uh, also reviewing op operations and maintenance of the building, and then looking at the timing and nature of problems, uh, uh, looking for patterns suggesting maybe there's a, uh, uh, an association, a consistency, uh, behind some potential problems in occupant complaints, or perhaps there's not, or perhaps the health complaints aren't really certain, but the building really could be improved uh, by the deficiencies if identified. And most IQ complaint studies, that's really enough. Uh, in something that's involving some real uh, difficult uh, medical problems or very complex situations, you might need to do a more detailed investigation, and testing can certainly be part of that, but it's not random testing of any uh, tests that you, you, you have on the shelf or your lab easily has available. It's a carefully put together sampling strategy that can actually answer a question and hypothesis. So ahead. that's what I've done in a thousand studies. Well, that document is Building Air Quality, a Guide for Facility Managers and Building Owners, and, and that eventually evolved into the um, EPA's uh, I-BEAM, the I Indoor Air Quality Building Education or Assessment Model, I believe it is. What's the difference between the original document and the, up, you know, the, the more current I-BEAM program? Anything in particular you'd like to point out? Well, I don't know. I haven't had any real direct work with EPA since 1990. I do know that the, the basic concepts uh, of our building air quality really morphed into the tools for schools and, I guess, this I-beam thing, yes. which I'm not real familiar with. Yeah. And uh, I think that's you know something I'm real proud of. And, again, I was uh, co-author with, with Terry Brennan and Bill Turner, and we worked closely with NIOSH. And uh, you know, some building people helped us review and put that together. Uh, Joe Stebrook actually contributed something to that. And it's, re it's really a document that's I'm very proud to see it on the shelves and being used out in the field and feel like that's something I actually contributed to. And it's still a good document, even though it was written in 1990. The, a lot of the base information is still quite useful. All right, let me turn it over to the Z-Man for his first question. Thanks, Joe, uh, and thanks for joining us, Ed. Ed, what are the goals of a clearance or post-remediation verification? Well, there are really two basic goals. One is restoration. Has the uh, contamination at the site been repaired and the damage eliminated and restored to pre-existing condition? It's a very simple concept that the industry uh, has dealt with uh, for a long time uh, and it's kind of gotten more complicated but not necessarily better uh, uh, determined from all of this testing. Of course, the other thing is, is if you're in a building with occupants, uh, you want to be uh, sure that the conditions are, are, are safe and healthy and uh, so restoration should restore the conditions and also leave a condition that's, that's uh, acceptable for health. And then we have to understand there's a gradation of health and sensitivity. 
So at the very minimum, we should keep the general population from getting sick and do the best we can with the sensitive population. Uh, and, and sometimes there may be a few individuals who just react to anything in the environment, not just this particular building. And we, uh, at least in my approach, we talk with the physicians and the occupants and the managers and try to sort things out. But a good restoration back to pre-existing conditions should take care of even most of the sensitive people. Thank you. And what, what even, you say even should take care of even the most sensitive people. What about when we have situations where the most sensitive people even, you know, they're still having difficulties? How do you handle that? Well, that, that's really patient-specific, and it gets more back into the medical management, medical decision. And one thing I do as industrial hygienist interviewing occupants is look for patterns. Uh, one of the important questions is, are, have you experienced these symptoms in other environments? And, you know, sometimes the sensitivity is allergy, and we feel like we're looking at a consistency when they report those same symptoms in the past in other environments that were, uh, you know, had some of the same problems. The other thing we might look for in sensitivity is people experiencing those symptoms away from the building and frequently or in other uh, areas of the buildings, which might suggest that they are so sensitive that stuff in your building may affect them, but that's... Um, probably two of many buildings, and there's only so much the building can do. Perhaps uh, location moving might help, but really, you, you, I, I try to provide inf environmental information back with the physicians, work with the physicians, and work with the people on that. And the true hypersensitivity is, is very rare, uh, especially when it's medically identified and truly consistent. You know, I I got to agree. I don't run into too many true hypersensitivities. On occasion, you'll run into it. All right, Ed, let's let's move on. Um, you you mentioned mold and, and testing, and I know that's a you know a, a sore point with a lot of people. What are the limitations? First, let's talk about what you see out there that that you don't like. I mean, what what are the limitations of the type of sampling you're seeing, and, and what do you see, and what don't you like about it? Well, uh, we look at lots of projects. We inherit lots of projects that haven't been working out well, and uh, we view other people's work. Uh, I participate in the American Industrial Hygiene Association that has lots of people out for testing. And uh, as far as water damage, mold, and mold remediation, uh, I see virtually no use of testing as being relevant at all. And that, that might sound like an extreme statement, but you look at the science, and first of all, as far as bioaerosols and airborne mold, uh, those do not directly relate to what is the fundamental problem, which is damp buildings and mold growth. Uh, and as far as surface mold, you, you can do an analysis of a little piece of surface uh, if you're just looking at spores in the air on the surface, there's no way to differentiate background from contaminated. Uh, we've done a paper and looked at the literature. There's a huge range of normal background in unwater damaged buildings. Uh, one test that's relevant is to look for actual mold growth structures on the surface. When you look through your microscope at a you know, few little piece of a tape, and that's all you can conclude on that one spot. Uh, the uh, the alternatives uh, really are going back to traditional ways: visual inspection, uh, engineering studies of moisture. Those really answer the questions about: Do you have a problem? And then, most importantly, if you have a problem, what have you got to fix? These people that go and do mold testing. Uh, very often don't have any idea. They're just guessing on what to fix. They'll tear the whole place down or tear the wrong place down. Uh, we see that in remediation, uh, unless they do a careful moisture study of the building, they're going to leave water damage and, and hidden growth uh, in, in more complicated projects. Uh, 
Well, that's why I think about mold testing not a whole lot. Let me let me ask you this though, and I mean, I, we get a lot of people who they they have the opposite opinion, and um, oftentimes it's because not necessarily because they feel like there's a great deal of science behind it, but more so because that's what that's what people want and sometimes need. So, for instance, we've got um, a, a real estate transfer, and and for whatever reason, the people who you know are, are are approving this transfer want some kind of sampling results. In those cases, what do you recommend? Well, actually, I'd say the majority of consulting cases that come to us, our first question, the first request is, you got to do mold testing for us. We've got a problem. And so I start from there, and we review, first of all, what their problem is, and uh, I give them a uh, kind of a layman's view of the scientific question of how testing will answer that and tell them what our approach would be to assess the problem and fix it. And uh, we get good consulting projects out of that. They want testing. I'm not going to sign uh, off of the CIH on data that I can't interpret. And I tell them, well, you know, look in the yellow pages and get yourself a mold tester. Uh, so that, that's basically uh, uh, how we approach it. So you turn those jobs down, basically. Yeah, I'll tell them, turn down a lot of jobs that are uh, really simple, routine, individual homeowners, mold concerns. They they call us, uh, and what I do is uh, I turn on I turn off the, uh, the time clock and go into counseling mode and review with them uh, the water damage problem they have, how they should work with restoration. And if they have health concerns, how they should work with their doctor to say what you really don't need on these smaller routine cases is is to pay for testing and pay for scientists to come in and, and essentially muck things up. So uh, maybe I'm not the best business man in the world, but that's how I approach it. Well, I don't... I don't necessarily, I don't think it's a, a bad approach. It's your approach. That's the way you do it. But let me ask you this. I want to I go, go one more moment into the uh, mold testing, and then I want, Cliff, if you would ask about this engineering approach to verification. But, but before we do, Ed, what are your thoughts on the AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, and the Green Book and their, their post-remediation verification document or their post-remediation verification uh, chapter, I guess, and, and the, the one recommendation that I know was made years ago and I haven't seen really catch on is, is to do a dust sample and basically to weigh it and to verify whether or not the area, the surface is clean. What are your thoughts on that approach? Well, first of all, on, on the AIHA Green Book, I, I kind of look at it as a Bible. It's got all kinds of statements in there and anybody can interpret it how they want to the extent that they are suggesting or recommending specific testing for routine mold assessment and clearance uh, I just don't think that answers the basic question it's not conclusive uh, you know industrial hygienists can do sampling and labs can get data and it looks impressive but it really does not answer the question we uh, we seen many sites, for example, on, on the verification uh, that have left water damage, uh, mold growth, uh, not resolved the moisture problem, and those pass with flying colors, the, the little tests they do, surface or air tests. On the other hand, uh, we've seen excellent restoration jobs that have truly fixed the problems, restored it, and uh, they funk based on some arbitrary formula of uh, counts of spores outside versus inside, or there's all these variations and Fermi tests and all this, which I consider very random and arbitrary and not answering the basic question. Cliff? Yeah, thanks, Ed. Uh, what is an engineering approach to verification? And what we do, which is in, in the 
I started out as an IQ firm, and actually the majority of people work for me, you know, mechanical engineers, because that's really where the action is as far as understanding and fixing problems. And engineers will uh, approach uh, a mold problem really as a moisture problem, uh, and in tracing and understanding the history and location and pathways of moisture, uh, uh, just a small subset of that is where the mold is growing, and that pops up very easily from the study and can be determined visually. Uh, as far as signing off and approving work, uh, we will not just go into a project after it's done and sign our CIH and say this is okay. Uh, and our engineering projects and our environmental projects involve us doing the assessment, uh, developing specifications, and for example, in a mold project, we set ourselves up on a team. We're not just we're not the experts. We want to develop our uh, our plan with the restorer and the owner and come up with something practical that meets our scientific and engineering principles. And then, uh, if this involves work by contractor and, and, and smaller stuff, we have no problem with maintenance or construction people under our direction doing the work. Uh, anything really major needs a good experienced restoration company. But we want to actually go on site, particularly in the beginning, and do surprise checks to make sure they're actually doing the procedure. And we like to cooperate and help the, the contractors do a job. We don't want to fail them in the end. We want to pass them. And then we get to the clearance state. And with all this under our belt, we know the problem, we know the procedures that are being used. It's a very simple engineering question. Is the scope of the work done? Were the procedures followed? Does the site look okay? Is it, uh, is it clean? Does it not smell? Is it sanitized? Uh, and that's what I call an engineering approach. Okay, that's fair enough. Now, I've got a comment here I want to read to you. Green Book actually says that a thorough visual inspection is required to clear a site, and I, I agree with that, and that sampling is a secondary method of clearance. And, and then they go on to discuss the, um, the, the gravimetric analysis of um, dust, okay? So I, I guess what you're saying is that it's more important, and I don't necessarily disagree, that, that you're there making sure that the moisture problem is fixed and that you're checking in on a regular basis to make sure that the contractor is doing what you specified in your protocol. Yeah, and in fact, uh, you know, we get dirty. We're on these sites a lot. And one of the things that strikes me is uh, the visual at the end, uh, you really don't appreciate the problems in the the screw-ups that have happened during the job that really can lead subtle contamination. Uh, so, again, we don't want to come just at the end of the job and do a visual or, or a test, but we want to get confidence in the contractor's work by being there with them. Uh, and, again, we, inevitably, even the best contractors, if somebody screws up, doesn't do something right, and that may not always be obvious visually, and you can't figure these things out by testing. Uh, but when we catch those conditions, you know, we'll make them do it over or do extra cleaning or redirect them. So that at the end, we can sign off on the job. And, and I believe that uh, most industrial hygienists signing off on mold jobs are maybe they're there in the beginning, they're there at the end, and not very often are they there during the dirty work, seeing when the things are getting, going right or wrong. And Ed, so let me just make sure I understand this. You, you, you're there during the job, but you do, at the end of the project, have a certain level of cleanliness that you expect. It's going to be clean, it's going to be dry, and there's not going to be any odors. Is that accurate to say? Uh, absolutely. And uh, very important to us, and particularly as engineers, that we understand and eliminate the problem, and sometimes there's an obvious simple problem, but a lot of times there's difficult to find leaks, there's 
difficult condensation problems. There's weird pathways of water. And um, so we put a lot of time in those projects into sorting that out and making sure they're fixed. Okay, and and what we we and got, also that our approach to containment is different. We don't think there's a magic number and a magic containment needed. Uh, and uh, so, as far as our approach on containment, uh, if it's not critical, the area isn't occupied, then there's a give and take between uh, containing to facilitate a cleanup, and if they don't fully contain, and we do a lot of jobs with partial containment. And that the contractor buys the whole area. They got to clean everything. Uh, and then, if we're really dealing with health concerns in occupied areas, then we go into a tight containment. And there's not a magic 10 square feet or 25 square feet. It's, uh, it requires professional judgment, uh, health and engineering and restoration background, and, and uh, in my view, the practices become simplistic. Well, magic numbers, magic tests. And you, you mentioned a team approach, and I think that's important. Let me let me do this, Ed. I've got a break and thank our sponsors at halftime. But I, I want to, when we come back, I want to play a little devil's advocate with you on some of the uh, some of the things that we're talking about here with respect to clean and dust free and all those things. Um, this has been interesting so far. Always a pleasure to have Ed Ed Light joining us. We're talking about some of the you know, the limitations and the alternatives to indoor air quality testing. We'll be back after we thank our sponsors. Thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit their website at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at J-O-N-D-O-N, that's johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine. Your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and C-M-M-Online.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their services or products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with Ed Light. Ed's calling in from uh, down south. And Ed, <clears throat> excuse me, during the first half, we talked a lot about, you know, the, the limitations and, and some of the investigative methods for indoor air quality. I want to get back into containment uh, for just a minute before I, before I move into another area, Ed. With respect to containments, I don't think, you're not saying um, we're going to eliminate engineering controls. You're just saying we don't, we're not going to overkill it with containments. Is that kind of an accurate encapsulation of what you were saying? Yeah, I can give you some typical examples uh, in unoccupied area doing mold remediation. You do critical barriers, and everything within any possible range is, is covered. Uh, when we do uh, water damage construction sites, 
There's all kinds of dirty stuff going on all the time, so we're not that uh, fussy as far as the containment. It's site-specific. Also, with the understanding that when the building gets done with construction, it's going to be fully cleaned and sanitized at the end. And so, uh, you know, we do make some effort to protect and contain, but not so crazy with it. Uh, on the other hand, if we're dealing in a very sensitive situation, occupied or real sensitive occupants coming back to the area, uh, we'll not do a full asbestos type setup, but we will do a full containment uh, with air scrubbing or if it's a super medical situation, probably go with negative air. Uh, so that's what we do for containment. Now, Ed, one of the... I want to turn it over to Cliff in a minute, but I have one more comment, and, and I'm seeing some interesting chat back and forth here. One of the comments was about, you know, industrial hygienists or, or other environmental professionals being on the job site at the appropriate times and being there from, you know, in the beginning, maybe doing some spot checks as we go along and then hopefully at the end. One of the problems I think people have with that is not so much that, they don't want to do that it's that owners don't want to pay for that can you give us a tip on how to get the owners to, to actually pay for that well uh, uh, like i said uh we feel our uh uh reputation and liability are on the line we don't take jobs unless we can really be there to see a representative portion of the job and uh in many cases what starts out as a request to building dynamics to come test for mold, they uh, buy into our approach and we do it as efficiently as possible. We also try to team up with the owner uh, and restoration managers to help us be our eyes and ears on the site. Um, and that's what we do. Uh, and, and I appreciate that many mold projects are in a low budget and we just barely want to get it done. but. I'm not going to put my name on something I don't understand or risk our, my company's liability. Well, I guess the other thing is that you could mention or emphasize that, you know, you're going to save them some money on the analytical side because you're not taking as many samples. Oh, there's a tremendous amount of money wasted for irrelevant data. And also, we feel like our approach, no job goes perfectly, and if we can educate and correct stuff with the contractor as we go, it's much more uh, uh, efficient than do-overs and tearing it out and <laughs> doing it again. And we're real strict at the end. That scope of work and those conditions have to be right, or they got to go back and do it over. And uh, so if we're there, we, we take care of that as the process goes. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Yeah, Ed, can you comment on visual inspections for other types of indoor environmental contracting projects such as HVAC system cleaning, asbestos, or lead paint abatement? Well, actually, we're, we haven't kept up and stayed involved in regulated areas of asbestos and lead, although I've uh, probably put together some of the first field asbestos programs in the, in the early 80s. And we've been specifically talking about mold. Uh, some other types of contamination uh, testing may be an essential part of assessing and verifying. However, the problem I see in those projects is sampling strategy and data interpretation. I mean, you really have to look at the science and measure the right parameters at the right times to, to conclude something from it. Uh, so. Uh, with other contaminants, measuring could make sense, but it, it needs to be scientifically approached, not just kind of cookie-cutter, random routine based on a little uh, training course. You know, Ed, I'm curious. We all kind of assume that, and maybe it's not. Maybe it's more than an assumption, that when we're done with the project that it's, it's visually clean, there's no odor, that there's some, is there some science to back that with respect to the health of the occupants at the end of the project? Just like, you know, we're saying that there's no science behind spore trap sampling with respect to health at the end of a project. 
is there science that exists to show that we have to get it visually clean and we have to have no odors? Uh, well, what we, we do know uh, is exposure uh, is eliminated. Mold growth is eliminated if you've truly taken care of the, uh, of the moisture problem and taking care of the, uh, the mold growth to date. And the, the failures we see are uh, most often related to ongoing moisture because they didn't really understand or, or, or get the moisture or failure to uh, include some areas of the scope of work. Uh, as far as uh, good health studies, uh, I have a problem reviewing the the uh, IAQ research literature, so much of it is based on epidemiology where the environmental side of the equation is based on a few measurements which really don't uh, reflect the conditions of the overall exposure. Uh, but what we can talk about physically is that we can eliminate the contamination, restore it to pre-existing condition, and we know mold is not going to come back the building dampness is not going to be an issue uh, if you control the moisture. Cliff? Um. You know, let me, let me if, if you don't have anything right, off, right away, Cliff, I've got a question I want to ask Ed about. Go ahead. Yeah, I was making a note. I want to change gears here a little bit, Ed, and... At the end, I'd like to get into some case studies, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit about LEAD projects, uh, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, the USGBC projects. What uh, I understand you have a good bit of experience with those. What are the current requirements for VOC sampling, volatile organic compounds, on, on LEAD projects? Well, actually, as far as experience, uh, we've turned down LEAD testing jobs. we as a matter of principle, don't take them because the data is not only not conclusive, it's not relevant to the question, which is, uh, has this uh, construction resulted in acceptable and healthy indoor air quality? Uh, and uh, I've reviewed the origin and the science behind the lead uh, air quality criteria and they, they simply don't compute. Uh, the the uh, list of VOCs for testing has been uh, greatly expanded in the latest version, and it's not been developed by indoor air scientists or industrial hygienists. There, it's a list inherited from hazardous materials. Criteria were developed in the state of California for emissions testing with health goals, uh, being no effects uh, in anyone based on estimates, not, uh, not direct evidence of, of health uh, outcomes at, at those levels. Uh, so uh, there are a lot of uh, problems with the actual lead criteria. There, uh, many of the chemicals listed aren't even important to indoor air quality and most of them have sources other than construction. So you're measuring outside air and other indoor sources and then blaming the construction uh, folks on the measurements. And uh, if building doesn't comply, then you basically they keep testing so they get a magic number. Uh, the lead sampling strategy is, is completely random, uh, arbitrary. Uh, basically, you get spot samples, and there's tons of sampling going on in these larger lead buildings. They take a certain number of samples per square feet, do expensive analyses, and this random sampling does not catch the conditions of uh, critical conditions if there is an IQ problem, because most of these are intermittent or dynamic, and it certainly doesn't give you average, and it certainly does not give you an idea of even what the occupants will be exposed to when they're in the building based on this really limited testing. Uh, so lead testing is uh, the uh, reason behind a lot of IQ lab and field testing work now. It's, if you look at it, it's not based in science, doesn't answer the question. 
I guess I got a comment here that, that and this is from a listener. It's not the question. That's they're saying that's not the question they're asking. That that the IAQ testing at the end of the project is a quality control measure for emissions from building materials. Uh, so it's not not necessarily a health-based uh, requirement. Is that as you understand it, Ed? Okay, our review of the actual uh, VOCs and the concentration limits shows a real disconnect between what are the emissions that we're trying to control and what we're measuring in the air. And first of all, having uh, hung around in this IEQ field for many years, uh, 25 years ago, the air in new buildings was irritating, high uh, strong odor, persistence, uh, truly was a priority indoor air problem. Uh, what we have done now, uh, what we've achieved, the manufacturing industry has achieved, is it's, it's in many cases, hard to even get a, a strongly emitting product. The low-emitting uh, products are the standard, even if it's not a lead building. And I'm around all kinds of new commercial and residential construction all the time in my job. At the end of construction, uh, you can hardly smell anything. Uh, there's, in fact, uh, with some ventilation at the end of construction, there's virtually no detectable odor in a lot of the projects I'm looking at. So, uh, first of all, the, the, what we look at for looking at for new construction is performance standards. One of the important performance standards is that the materials were low emitting, and uh, the lead tests really aren't even a check on that. There was, uh, as far as the case study, NIST has it, uh, done some very good research on uh, a pilot home they, they constructed in these standards and uh, found that most of the VOCs they, that, that were actually associated with the materials and the emissions aren't even on the lead list. And most of the ones on the lead list weren't even on this list of findings in, in that recent project. And then uh, the lead VOCs that can be connected with building materials have all kinds of other sources, outdoor air and indoor sources. So it's not a quality control. Uh, oh, oh, and the final comment I've seen on some building carriers we've looked at is uh, we've got some buildings that met all the lead uh, material screening, all the IAQ testing at the end, and stunk. They had odor problems from uh, materials that weren't made right or were applied wrong, and they didn't show up in the test. There were different parameters, subtle problems, and uh, the lead testing isn't a good quality check on anything. It's just a bunch of numbers, but uh, other people can have other opinions. That's fine. Uh, we need to show some evidence for it. Now, is that primarily, it sounds like your primary concern is the VOC testing. I would imagine you're not against the carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and, and some of the other components, or are you? I'm totally against it. That, uh, take them one at a time. Carbon monoxide is, is not a contaminant. It's a uh, rough indicator of ventilation of fully occupied areas. So, these people are testing CO2 before oxygen, that's ridiculous. Carbon monoxide uh, is uh, associated with in, improper venting of combustion. Uh, if for some reason, there, and I've not, I've not really seen this, a failure of combustion venting uh, prior to construction, this usually happens uh, after a building is occupied, something happens with the venting. Uh, and uh, while they say carbon monoxide is odorless, all the problems I've seen is you smell the odor of combustion products and a, a spot random test for carbon monoxide probably won't pick up even if there is a problem. It's, it's very important to commission buildings to engineer them right so the stuff's vented right, to commission them so the sources are being controlled. And a walkthrough of the building, if you smell a combustion odor, and you've got a problem in your lead testing, probably not going to even identify it. 
are there any programs out there that you uh, th that you do agree with with respect to the you know the the new green type construction programs? I guess the USGBC has one and others. Uh, are you are there any that you do uh, feel comfortable with? Well, as far as the uh, the characterization approval of overall indoor air quality, uh, the, what I've seen doesn't, it's not relevant. It doesn't do that. There are uh, aspects of LEED and other requirements uh, you know, for good ventilation, uh, for good source control. Where they have totally missed the boat is on moisture. And in, in my practice, we're looking at uh, construction and construction failures and IEQ complaints, by far the biggest source is moisture-related. LEED virtually doesn't even address moisture. We've, we've got case buildings, that LEED gold buildings, that pass with flying colors, got all their LEED points and have their gold certificates up in the, in the building, and they have massive moisture failures and uh, problems in the building because it's not even on LEED's radar screen. Uh, okay, well, yeah. Cl Cliff, bef uh, before we go to round up, do you have any questions you wanted to ask Ed? No, not really, Joe. I'm, right. I'm still writing furiously. <laughs> Cliff's working on the blog here. I'll tell you what, we, I don't know if we even have the roundup music uh, queued up here. So what I'd like to do, Ed, is um, you had mentioned a couple case studies. I wonder if you could maybe – give our listeners a, a, a little little bit from a case study. Uh, and and doesn't matter whether it's on a mold project or a lead project. Just uh, give us a little idea of what types of projects have led you to these conclusions. Well, we, we had some interesting experiences in, uh, in after that in 9-11. We were called up to New York uh, to do a variety of things. And they all... They, in four instances, uh, really showed the disconnect between IQ testing and actually having to make decisions on, on building conditions and health. So the first thing we got there a few days after the uh, the horrible bombing building collapse, and we were looking at a federal building a half a mile away, and it was it was a critical building it had to stay occupied. GSA had all their tests made and. Uh, it told the management of the building, look, we pass all standards. EPA was testing, GSA contractors were testing, said it was fine. And the agency occupied the building called us up for consulting and said, our people are getting sick. <laughs> and we want to work it. This is, you've got to figure out what's going on. So we did an engineering IQ review and uh, identified some, some real significant exposures. You know, first of all, the, within a half a mile, for uh, a couple weeks, uh, this whole area of New York was a burning and the asbestos dust and the combustion. And, uh, they were all affected. And uh, second of all, the GSA, I guess, building engineer had uh, blocked the outdoor air intake trying to protect his building and, of course, left the exhaust running. So put the building in tremendous negative pressure. And then in our epidemiology, we found a, a whole group, an area that was sick, and this was a adjacent right above an area under construction where all the windows are out. So this building was sucking all this flesh and asbestos in the building, and then our epidemiology also found, and this is, we're not physicians, we're just getting industrial hygiene interviews, we found that the people with symptoms were all in, had respiratory pre-existing, and they were having those same symptoms on their way home in the streets in their homes in lower Manhattan. So it wasn't just their building. Uh, so again, that shows the disconnect between IQ sampling. Then the next assignment we had, the same agency had a building right across the street from the World Trade Center. And they wanted us to advise them on it. It had to be risk taken, of course. They had to do a restoration. So we were to advise them on the restoration and clearance. And so... First of all, the, the folks who were doing the clearance, they, they said their testing was coming along real well. Everything was set. Uh, so we looked at their data and said, well, that's interesting. Uh, 
He just did an visual inspection. He found that the ducks were full of crap. They hadn't been cleaned at all. They were supposed to have been cleaned. And that the dust that came in the building uh, was still trapped. And he moved furniture and uh, exposed surfaces. They, had, they hadn't done a full cleaning job. And then uh, the, the third problem we found that at the end, the building would fail, fail to clear. And the consultants had done all this chemical clearance testing. At, by that time, the building was really fully restored. So what they were failing the building on was surface tests of dioxin. So what I did was look at the literature. There, this is in very old New York City. Urban background surfaces with dioxin was the same level as what they were getting. So again, that shows you the, the kind of arbitrary nature of the testing and the criteria, uh, as opposed to our approach to looking at the science and looking at the general performance. You know, Ed, we had a, a question earlier, and I, I think I know your answer on this, but I'll just uh, ask you anyway. Are, are you seeing, this was from a, a listener, are you seeing many people blaming IAQ complaints on mold but ignoring other potential concerns like chemical, physical agents, climate control, housekeeping, etc. Oh, absolutely. So over 30 years, I, I did a presentation of IQ Flavor of the Month. And, <laughs> and what's on the Internet and what's the, the publicity is always the problem. And mold has had a more than a month. It's been a mold decade. So anybody who's experiencing a, a problem from building conditions uh, it's always mold, and it's not always mold. So uh, uh, one of the problems with commercial IQ consulting is, uh, you know, the, the tests are based on the complaint, and what what you really need to do is a general assessment of the building condition and the actual complaints, like you said, doing the uh, building air quality handbook. And, uh, yeah, so mold, mold is sometimes complaint. The health studies really show that it's building dampness, uh, but mold growth is really associated with some complaints, but a whole bunch of complaints aren't from mold. Cliff, before we go, is there anything you'd like to ask? Yeah, I think, Ed, um, would you agree or disagree that the sampling and testing that's done on these lead buildings is there to justify the certification? Uh, I, I think it's a result of uh, the, uh, the organization, the professions that put this together really aren't indoor scientists or uh, uh, industrial hygienists. And in their mind, uh, chemicals are responsible for problems. And if we test chemicals, that's good. And uh, it's uh, it's a paperwork exercise, and so we've seen lead buildings that are have all kinds of bad conditions, uh, and the testing really just isn't relevant to answer the question: Has the construction produced a uh, a building with acceptable IAQ? And, uh, you know, Ed, I. I've, I've listened, we, we've had you a few times, and it's always interesting to, to talk to you about this. One of the things I do, I, I really agree wholeheartedly on it, and I respect is that, you know, you've, um, you come from a, an industrial hygiene background, but you've aligned yourself closely with engineers and those that have a good building science kind of background. And I think... The takeaway for me is that uh, we have to make sure that we're, we're focusing on that key point and that if we're not, we're, we're missing a lot. And that, um, you know, it's very important to have qualified people in there assisting with those building science issues to make sure you get to the root of the problem, regardless of whether it's, you know, uh, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, volatile organic compounds, mold, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we go? Well, also along that line, uh, we work very closely with physicians when there are serious uh, medical and health issues or alleged issues involved. And as industrial hygienists, I recognize my limitations. We 
understand potential risk and exposures, when it comes down to individual diagnosis and causation, we have to work with physicians, and the physicians don't know the environmental uh, conditions, and so it's it's really the teaming uh, that I do with uh, physicians and engineers that gets us uh, a good understanding and, and solves problems. Um, most IQ problems really aren't that complex and be, can be solved without consultants in terms of common sense, building operation, restoration, and maintenance. Um, yeah, so that's my closing comment. Well, Ed, I appreciate that, Ed. I, we appreciate you joining us here on IAQ Radio. Cliff, any final comments? Nope, I'm done. Ed, uh, once again, uh, our thanks go out to Ed Light. Uh, we're talking about the limitations and alternatives to IAQ testing. I didn't see anything too terribly controversial, Ed. I think uh, you can uh, stop. You don't have to look over your shoulder this week. <laughs> Although, where you're at, you got to be a little careful down, down south. Uh, but I think um, you did a great job. We appreciate having you come on and certainly uh, look forward to talking to you again. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. All right. And, of course, keep playing that banjo, Ed. Uh, I love having that uh, extra little, you know, addition to the show. That was great. Well, I've written a new song, Don't Berate the Caliphate, but I'm not allowed to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. How about sending that one to me and we'll uh, – We'll figure out what we can do with that sometime. Thanks again to Ed Light, uh, this week's guest. Uh, much appreciated, as always. Um, thanks, of course, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Always fun, Joe. Good to have you. At the controls, Frank Zappa Amata. Good job there, Frank. Uh, we're getting it. Uh, we're going to try and revamp things a little bit here between now and next week. Cliff, do you have any uh, announcement or, or thoughts on next week's show you want to give people before we go? Nope, nope. All right, great. We've, we've got a guest lined up. We're going to get that information out to everybody soon. Most importantly, thanks to all of our loyal listeners. It's great to have you here. And uh, I don't know who got the, the trivia question, but somebody got it. Please remember to send your information to Cliff Czlotnick at cs.com. And we'll see everybody back here next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. Call recording has been completed.